Today I want to speak about gospel culture. And uh, the sub-series of this, the subtitle of this series is How the Church Radiates the Beauty of Christ. I love this image. I think it's so, look, it looks a little bit like traditional churchy vibe. I get it. But you, you get the idea. The church radiating the beauty of Christ at the center. It is just extraordinary. God has been captivated by um, a, a book and a, and a podcast series by a, a, a man named Ray Ortland and Sam Albury. It's called You're Not Crazy. It's for church leaders, but I promise you any one of us would benefit from listening to it. It's extraordinary. Ray also wrote a book called Gospel, and, um, and uh, it's phenomenal, and I'm reading it, and so much of what I'm hearing and what I'm reading in those two things has informed this message and this, this message series. In fact, we listened to this podcast, You're Not Crazy, in our staff devotions, and James and I were chatting about it, and it's one of those things that we just thought, we just have to talk about this in church. And, um, and so this, this, this has informed something of the series. I encourage you to have a listen. Um, why is it so important? Let me talk to you about the why behind this series. Why gospel culture? Because it's possible to believe all the right things and still live unattractive, ungospel lives. It is. We've all experienced that at some point of our lives. It's, it's possible to know everything and be theologically right but have those truths not be alive in, you, in our hearts as a church and in our practices and in our, our habits. It's possible to be a theologically astute and yet be cold and uncaring. Gospel doctrine needs to be right and so too does gospel culture. The heart behind the series, maybe I can show to you in a couple of pictures, some maths sums. I know it's early and it's cold this morning. Gospel doctrine Without gospel culture, let's call it hypocrisy. Okay? Make sense? However, gospel culture minus gospel doctrine is fragility. Gospel, gospel culture without gospel doctrine is fragile. It's weak. It's fleeting. It's going to run out of steam. It's not sustainable. However, gospel doctrine without do gospel culture is pointless as well. However, when we get gospel doctrine accompanied with gospel culture, we find something that is both powerful and irresistible, and it's what I long for and we long for for our church. Does that, does that make sense? gospel doctrine, what we believe, the truth, accompanied by how that truth plays out in our community, that leads to an irresistible experience of the grace of God in the community of God and a powerful representation of the person of Jesus. Think back with me or listen back with me to the words of someone from many, many decades ago. Francis Schaeffer wrote this, one cannot explain the explosive dynamite, the dunamis, the power of the early church, apart from the fact that they practiced two things simultaneously, orthodoxy of doctrine and orthodoxy of community. In the midst of the visible church, it wasn't just like something they practiced in their bedrooms quietly where nobody could see or like in the coffee shop with their friend. In the visible church, a community which the world could see. By the grace of God, therefore, the church must be known simultaneously for its purity of doctrine and the reality of its community. Our churches have, uh, have so often been only preaching points with very little emphasis on community. But exhibition or demonstration of the love of God in practice is beautiful and it must be there. It, that, that's what happened in the early church. It wasn't just these guys all believe the right things. Man, 100% for their theology exam. Woohoo! 
It wasn't. It was th- those things were so real and so true, and they were so compelling in their hearts that it overflowed into how they lived and interacted together. And so this ecosystem, this community, this environment of relationships that displayed this glorious truth of Jesus shone out, and it was irresistible. The world that opposed it, tried to fight against it, tried to shut it down, could not resist it. Even the, those who were in, in opposition to it were won over by the wonder and beauty of the gospel. Uh, Ray Ortland in his, in his book, defines gospel doctrine like this. God, through the perfect life, atoning death, and bodily resurrection of Jesus, rescues all people from the wrath of God into peace with God. The full restoration of His created order forever, all to the praise and glory of His grace. Maybe leave it up there for a second. The gist of it is God, through Jesus' life, death, and resurrection, rescues us human beings from enmity, from being enemies with God, enemies with ourselves, enemies with others, and restores us to the original life that He created us for with God, with ourselves, and with one another. And this is all through Jesus' doing, totally outside of myself, totally undeserving. I did nothing to deserve this, absolutely nothing. Uh, forgive me, uh, indulge me a little bit. I came up with a, an illustration that I think somehow captures this for me, and I, 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 it's, it's very flawed. All the disclaimers in place. Are you ready? So you've got to imagine you're a bank robber. You, you've just committed a horrific crime. You're on the run. You're sprinting. It's a busy, like, New York-type street. You're running away because the cops are after you, right? You've been very, very bad, guilty, and you're running, but you've got a little bit of a lead, and so the cops are after you. You head around a corner, and there, not New York, let's call it London, is the great store of Harrods, the greatest retail store on the planet, right? And as you get there, the, the cops are around the corner, so you duck in, and two things happen simultaneously. Number one, the cops carry running right by the store. And as you walk through the set, threshold of the store, balloons fall, music play, streamers get fired, fireworks go off, and it says, congratulations to the one millionth customer. You have won a million pounds. Your life has changed. You were just trying to escape this horrible thing. You did nothing to deserve, you just, you just, you're just running away, and then, except I didn't tell you about what happened in the middle. As you arrived at the store, your twin brother was waiting for you. He took one look at you in the state you were in, and he knew you were in a world of trouble. And he said, take my cap, take my clothes, let me put yours on me. And he dressed in your clothes, and he walked out, and you walked in. And while the balloons were falling for you, He was being locked up in the police van. And your life would never be the same because he stepped in and he stood in your place. You did nothing to deserve that. But you have it all the same. Gospel doctrine. Free by the grace of God, good things happening to bad, undeserving people. Gospel culture then, Ray Ortland says this, the shared experience of grace 
for the undeserving. The corporate incarnation of the, lots of words, lots of long words, I know it's early in the morning, the corporate incarnation of the biblical message in the relationships, here we go, here's easier words, the vibe, the feel, the tone, the values, the priorities, the aroma, the honesty, the freedom, the gentleness, the humility, the cheerfulness, indeed the total human reality of a church defined and sweetened by the gospel. Just, I know there's lots of long words. Let's leave it up here. Just read it through one more time. Think about it for a second. The corporate means together, incarnation, something, something has been put into the center of, and now from within is being displayed into of the biblical message, this gospel doctrine. Have a look at that. gospel culture. Every part of our togetherness, our community radiating, these lines radiating outwards, the wonder of Jesus, the wonder of the dude who's just been forgiven, who's walked into that store and undeservingly has had his life completely transformed, the worst parts about him removed, and a new future in front of him. I mean, if our church became the kind of place where bad things, where good things happen to bad people, not bad things happen to good people. Where bad things, where good things happen <laughs> to bad people. I, I honestly, I think outsiders would walk in on a Sunday and in the words of my 11-year-old daughter would say, oh my days, where has this place been all my life? I feel like I've been searching for this every day of my life. And I found it. That is, the, that is the fruit of the gospel. We have at the center of our church community the most powerful, incredible force in the universe, and it is the gospel. Romans 1.16, for I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes. It is the power of God alive in the midst of us. As Francis Schaeffer used the word, the dunamis, the power. But that, that power is the doctrine of the gospel which then must, gospel community grows up in the soil of, of gospel doctrine. It's the church radiating the beauty of Jesus. When grace impacts our hearts in such a way as it, it doesn't remain private, it, it changes how we live. And, and, to, and together we collectively, it's why I was so, just, just what, I don't want us to take for granted the privilege of just showing up for one another, not just for ourselves, not just for, hey, what can I get out of this Sunday? But, but what can I give? How do I be a blessing to somebody else? How do, I, how, do I, how do I love on someone else? Ortland says this, the church, a church, not the church, a church, like ours, our, our church, is a body of believers Jesus together drawing their life from Him in regular, practical, organized ways that accelerate our progress in Jesus. When we gather as a church, it's more than just to get together. There were get-togethers all over this weekend in the South Peninsula. People got together for sport. People got together for coffee, for movies. The, the, the church is not a get-together. Maybe, maybe you go to a worship concert, you know, and you have an amazing worship experience. There's somebody you've never seen before in your life, but they're worshiping, you worshiping. You think, it's amazing. We don't even know each other, but we know Jesus. Wow, this is so cool. Two weeks later, you walk into a coffee shop. There, there he is again. Wow, that's great. That's lovely, but that's not church. The church is not just a get-together. 
as a church, we become corporately members of one another. 1 Corinthians 12 teaches us that as the church, we become members of one another. Like this hand is a member of this body and this arm is a member of this body. We belong to one another and together I'm more than just a heap of bits. Together we become a body which visibly communicates, demonstrates, and, and bestows life into the world. Peter said it so well, 1 Peter 2, verse 4 and 5. As you come to him, you come to Jesus, who is a living stone rejected by men, but in the sight of God chosen and precious. You yourselves, like living stones, are being built up as into a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood, to offer spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. You and I are like stones, like these like concrete slabs knit together to become a building in which God lives and radiates the beauty of God like a priesthood. What does a priest do? A priest mediates the grace of God to other people. That's what we do in our togetherness. If you're a Christian, you've got to choose between isolation and your own mission in life which is easy and belonging. Every one of us has to settle that in our hearts. I, I, I know I go hard after this thing because I just I, I, one of the ways that I think we are being primarily discipled in our culture is to follow your heart, follow your dreams, be your own special kind of snowflake unicorn because nobody can be just like you. <sighs> you are meant for something more than just yourself. As wonderful as you are, and I, I hope you can see I love you lots. I really mean that. You're just meant for so much more than just you. You belong to something bigger. You've got to choose between isolation and belonging. And belonging, let me tell you, is costly. But it's so much more satisfying. And it's so much more meaningful. And it's so much more beautiful in what it can do and display to a watching world. You understand the high level behind the series? Gospel doctrine, gospel culture, power. That's what we're looking for in our lives. It only happens in the context of not loosely connected people who randomly connect for get-togethers from, like regularly in the context of membership as we kind of, fancy word, metabolize the gospel together and we seek to live that out. So let's look at how Paul describes this. Let's look at how Paul describes the relationship between Jesus and the church. Ephesians 5, we're going to start halfway through a verse, which is strange, I know, but we're going to do that. Ephesians 5, verse 25b to 27. Let's see what it says. Christ loved the church. Isn't that extraordinary? He gave up his life for her to make her holy and clean, washed by the cleansing of God's word. He did this to present her to himself as a glorious church without spot or wrinkle or any other blemish. Instead, she'll be holy and without fault. Let's break it down. Christ loved the church and gave his life for her. Not only did that brother, in your case and my case, outside Harrods, jump into the back of a police van, but he actually paid the ultimate price and was executed, taking our place. He gave his life up for her. Who's her? The, tro the chosen precious lady. Who's she? She's the church. She's you and me together. Christ gave his life. Come on. The creator God of the universe. The one of whom Mike read in John 1. The light of the world. 
took on flesh and he died for his very creation. It's extraordinary. Let's go, let's press on. To make her holy and clean, washed by the cleansing of God's word. The context of this teaching is marriage. And Jesus' love for the church is being used as an example here to husbands and wives because, because the nature of Christ's relationship to the church is marital in nature. Going to get a little bit uncomfortable here. Can we do that? Okay, let's do it. I saw one nod there. When I went looking for my bride, I went looking and searching for the most beautiful, lovely woman on the planet, and I found her. And she's not even in this meeting. She's only coming to the next one. I did. I'm so glad that Jesus didn't do that. Not Jesus. Because if he did, none of us would be here. I certainly wouldn't be. He went searching for the dirty one. The one who needed cleansing. He left heaven to go to the wrong side of the tracks to find his bride. And what does he want to do? He wants to wash her and renew her and make her lovely again where she wasn't lovely. There's a bit of disagreement when it comes to this text around what does it mean to wash her, to wash the church with a word. Some people think it means baptism. I, I, th- I think more likely it refers to the gospel, the word of Christ being the gospel. Whichever way you take it, if you believe the gospel, you need to be baptized anyway, so it's close enough. Um, but, but, but bottom line is, but Jesus came to, to, to wash and to beautify and to, to take this bride from the other side of the tracks. It's you, it's you and me, by the way. We're the bank robber who didn't deserve to get into Herod's, to take our lives broken, messed up, sinful as we are, and to wash them and to renew them and to transform them and to make them undeservedly as wonderful and delightful and as beautiful as they could possibly be. Our cleansing is both once off in the moment when he saved me and yet ongoing every, every day as my heart and your heart is still prone to wander away from Christ. Because, because Christ at times feels far away. Our loving husband who gave himself for us feels at times far away. And our hearts are drawn and captivated by the things that are here and now and right in front of us. And so we flirt with other lovers and we're captivated in our devotion to them. This world leads us to, to, to walk away from Christ toward other things. And I'm using the language of adultery here because, because the language of the Bible is and the language of the gospel is that. We say to ourselves, what's the big deal? Everybody does it. Oh, he's all about grace anyway, isn't he? But, but, but what this passage teaches us is that the love of Jesus for us as his church is sacred. It's exclusive. Jesus is not just one way to God. He's not even the best way to God. He's the only way to God. Where else does the God of the universe Die to save his bride. Other than in in this glorious revelation we have of God in the Bible and in Christianity. In a world full of cheap lovers offering shallow love, Jesus loves and cherishes his church like no one else. 
Octavius Winslow once said of Christ, the obedience and death of the Lord Jesus laid the foundation and opened the way for the exercise of this great and sovereign act of grace. The cross of Jesus displays the most awesome exhibition of God's hatred of sin and at the same time the most august, the most, the most profound, the most definitive manifestation of His readiness to pardon it. Pardon full and free is written out on every drop of blood that is seen, is proclaimed on every groan that is heard. O blessed door of return, open and never shut to the wanderer from God. How glorious, how free, how accessible. Here the sinful, the vile, the guilty, the unworthy, the poor, the penniless may come. Here too the weary in spirit may bring its burden. The broken spirit, its sorrow. The guilty spirit, its sin. The backsliding spirit, its wandering. All are welcome here. The death of Jesus was the opening and the emptying of the full heart of God. It was the outgushing of that ocean of infinite mercy that heaved and panted and longed for an outlet. It was God showing how he could love a poor and guilty sinner. What more could he have done than this? I dare you to find one hope in all the world of which that can be said. There is nothing even claiming to be close. And I put to you, it should stir in our hearts more than kind of like a, a steadied, moderate affection. It should be all-encompassing. It should be overwhelming. Why did he do this? Ephesians 5 tells us he did this to present her to himself as a glorious church without a spot or a wrinkle or any blemish. Instead, she will be holy and without fault. He washes us as we radiate his love. Like flowers opening before the sun. Not right now, obviously, while it's pouring with rain. But the flowers, we'll see them all over the west coast, all over the South Peninsula. How they, those fechis open as the sun comes out. And they open to the radiance of the sun. And they reflect back the sun's, the beauty that shone upon them. They radiate back to him. That's what the church is like. And it's, we, we reflect back to Christ. We reflect to one another. And we reflect outwardly to a watching world. And it's because the gospel is about marriage that the ultimate category for our lives is not our goodness and our badness but rather our union with Christ. It's not how good or how bad you are. It's are you in Christ? How close are you to Christ? That's what matters here. So I want to call us today to closeness. I want to call us to be a, a community who prizes our union with Jesus. And how do we do that? I want, can I give us two things? For the rest of the series, we'll probably look at one thing. Maybe, maybe we'll slip in one or two. I don't want to overcommit. Um, but two things that I want to call us to. Are you ready? Okay, two things. I want to take us back. Last year, we were working through a book in the New Testament. We worked through the book of James. Now, many of those messages would have just been for that moment, for us, for that week. But, but some of those texts, I think, 
are, are sticky for us as a church. I want them to be part of our culture. And James chapter 5 in particular is one of those that, that I, I think has stuck with me and it's stuck with us. And so I want to say to you today, gospel culture is honest and gospel culture is restorative. Gospel culture is honest and gospel culture is restorative. It's personally honest about what's getting between me and Jesus, and it's corporately restorative when others are drifting away. James chapter 5, 16 and 19 and 20 says, Therefore confess your sins to one another and pray for one another that you may be healed. The prayer of a righteous person has great power as it is work, in its working. And then he says later, My brothers, if anyone among you wanders from the truth and someone brings him back, let him know that whoever brings back a sinner from his wandering will save his soul from death and will cover over a multitude of sins. Uh, among other things, the gospel answers two fundamental questions that every human being has to settle. And, and these questions are this. What do you really believe about who God is? And what do you really believe about what sin is like? What do you believe about what God is like? And what do you believe about what sin is like? And, and in fact, when we put these two together, we, we get something in the gospel. And the answer that the gospel teaches us is sin is both more horrible and deplorable and more destructive than we ever like to think. And yet Christ is more willing to forgive and renew us in grace than we ever could imagine. It is only when we understand these things in their truth, and they're extreme truths. The danger is that we kind of moderate them. Oh, you know, sins, I mean, it's, 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 it's there, it's a thing, it's kind of everyone's, yeah, I mean, it's kind of, it, everything in our hearts wants to minimize what that thing is. But, but in so doing, then we also end up minimizing the lengths that Christ had to go to in order to rescue and redeem us, you know? I mean, Jesus is good and, and he's nice, and, but I mean, actually, it's quite nice for him that I come today, actually. Uh, I mean, I didn't have to come to church today, but I, but I came, and it's nice for Jesus that I came, because I'm quite nice, and you, you know, we, we, we can get into this trap where we, we start to minimize sin, and we, we, we can, then we end up starting to minimize who Jesus is, but actually, sin, the gospel teaches us, is more horrid and deplorable and destructive. Just pick up a newspaper. Just look, just look at the destruction and the evil that happened. Just look in your own life, and you think of the pain that's gone wrong in the relationships that you're a part of. Sin is horrible. It's terrible. Yet, at the same time, Christ is so good. Richard Foster says of Christ, at the heart of God is the desire to give and to forgive. God is so kind and so gracious and so loving and sin is so terrible. And these two meet on the cross. And they meet and they, and they become accessible to our lives. And so, if you really believe these two things, and I want to speak for a second to Christ followers here. If you're not yet a Christ follower, this, you're kind of looking in your, this is going to be an insight into a practice of, some, of Christians, I think. James says, therefore, if, if sin is really so evil and God is so gracious and wanting to heal us, therefore confess your sins to one another and pray for one another that you may be healed. When we really believe that what the gospel teaches us about sin and Jesus, we stop hiding we stop pretending, I stop covering up my sin, I stop resisting God, I surrender my autonomy, I value Jesus' washing and transforming my life over the illusion of my togetherness that I project to my friends and family and church. And I'm more compelled by a vision of what my new life in Christ can look like than I am of the way I want everybody else to think about me. I begin to encounter God's grace. 
and I'm transformed. And I'm not talking about confessing to a priest, although in a sense I am, because all of us are priests in Christ. Ray Orton points out that the most important personal trait in gospel culture is honesty. He points to 1 John 1 verse 7, but if we walk in the light as he is in the light, we have fellowship with one another. I'm in the, in the light means I'm not covering up, I'm not hiding, I'm not pretending. My life is seen by you. We have fellowship with one another and the blood of this, Jesus, his son, cleanses us from all sin. Honesty is a mark of orthodoxy. And I think we've been so conditioned in a culture of shaming and posing and blaming and finger pointing and mask wearing that we do that and we bring that into the church. And because of that, these things that we carry, man, I just, I shared at a men's event recently in our church, but how as a young guy, I, I, mean, I, was, I was a rotten, messed up teenager, proper, proper bad way. Moms and dads, you did not want me dating your daughter. That much I can tell you. I was in a bad way. Or even just mates with your son. I, anyway. And I came to faith. But now, all, I don't know, maybe you don't know this, maybe you do. But when you become a Christian, all your son, sin doesn't just magically disappear, right? So, like, so, so I'm, I'm a Christian now, and, and I've and I'm, I'm brought with me this kind of this porn addiction from like 11, 12 years old. Okay, so, so now I'm like becoming a Christian, but this is like the secret part of my life that no one you know, knows about. I'm worshiping Jesus on Sunday, our hands are high and whatever, whatever, you know. But I'm carrying this thing in my heart and, I, and I'm, I'm feeling, and, 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 and there's shame associated with this and I know that I'm hiding and no, no one else knows and I, it's just, it's eating away at my confidence in God and et cetera. It's, it's part of, anyway, for years I lived like this until Never forgotten one night. So Friday night, been worshiping with a bunch of my mates, and, and, I, and we just could not, I could not take any more this dual life, this hiding. Oh, look at Luke. He's a leader. He's a, blah, blah, blah. But actually, this is what's going on in his life, you know? And I just came clean with a bunch of mates who subsequently came clean as well about similar things and different things in their lives too. And I can honestly trace back to that moment, years I'd been on my own, just like living this hidden life, wanting to be free, but struggling and taking two steps forward and three steps back. And to literally from that moment, I, uh, the grace of God came to me. Suddenly, like all of who I am was known and I wasn't rejected and I was loved and I was accepted and my mates prayed for me and I received grace. And I began to change. My mates checked in with me. It wasn't like the accountability police. It, it was encouraging. How are you doing? How do we come, let's pray. Let's. And grace began to come to my life. I can honestly trace back to that moment with those mates where we began to confess things that were secret in our lives that we'd battled with, where grace came to us and freedom. And I'm so grateful that within, I don't know, months or weeks weeks, months, that thing began to die. And I never, I never got to carry that into my marriage. I never got to carry that into my church leadership. I never got to carry that into who I am now as a dad and as a father. I'm, I'm so grateful because it, it could so easily have just continued in secret. I'm so grateful that that thing died because grace came to me in the context of honesty with some brothers in Christ. Bonhoeffer writes this, Dietrich Bonhoeffer, in his book, Life Together. 
says, our brother has been given to us to help us. He hears the confession of our sin in Christ's stead, and he forgives us our sins in Christ's name. He keeps the secret of our confession as God keeps it. When I go to my brother to confess, I am going to God. A man who confesses his sins in the presence of a brother knows that he no longer is alone with himself. He experiences the presence of God in the reality of the other person. As long as I am by myself in the confession of my sins, everything remains in the dark. But in the presence of my brother, the sin has to be brought into the light. My heart is that every one of us as followers of Jesus would be able to have one or two brothers if you're a dude, sisters if you're uh, not a dude, um, a lady, um, who knows the worst part about you. So you're not alone carrying that thing as a secret and who's trusting with you, who, who knows the worst part about you and still loves you and receives you and trusts with you for God's grace to transform you. Who that brother or sister in our lives would walk with us like Christ and wash us with the word and help us to become more beautiful in Christ. I mean, I, if I could really stick my neck out here, I wish it would happen in our life groups. I wish that our life groups would meet regularly, separate us, men and women, and just create space for us to bring to the light stuff that needs to be brought to the light. Because we all see this in the media, more and more famous Christians, leaders that we've seen. Recently, one I really looked up to, died and we all celebrated his life and then two months later out came the scandals that were hidden and I can't help but think to myself if he just had one or two friends who he spoke with and got real with and and and, and didn't pretend look at look at, I'm such an amazing leader no no just got real with and said this is who I really am can you help me yes there would have been a road to restoration but his family wouldn't be left cleaning up the mess of his life, man. Sorry, I, yeah. Guys, it's, it's gospel culture. The second thing, so, so we, we're honest. Can we bank that? Honest. Because we understand the reality of sin and the wonderful truth about Christ. And the second thing is gospel culture is restorative. If sin is worse than we ever kind of like to believe, and yet Christ is more loving to forgive and restore than we ever could imagine, then, then gospel culture creates an environment where believers who see our friends and family wondering go after to help restore them. I'm piggybacking off last week's message. James says, my brothers, if anyone among you wonders from the truth and someone brings him back, I'd love to believe that our church is full of someone's who bring others back. Let him know that whoever brings back a sinner from his wandering will save his soul from death and will cover a multitude of sins. Galatians 1, 6. Brothers, if anyone is caught in any transgression, you who are spiritual should restore him in the spirit of gentleness. Why? Because I know how bad I've, how far from Christ, how undeserving I am. What right do I have to be harsh and self-righteous and critical with you? Jesus has been so gentle with me in my brokenness, so I'm going to be so gentle with you in yours. And a culture, a gospel culture, is a culture who pursues those 
are wandering away in gentleness and in love. We don't just watch others walk away from Christ and stumble into destruction. I mean, last week we spoke about how we do this. We do this in gentleness. We do this without condemnation. We do this from a context of deep commitment. Man, I'm really your mate. I'm not going anywhere. I'm for you. What's it going to take? How can I show you the wonder of Christ again? We're trying to win those back. And, And it's amazing when you read the New Testament how this is all over the New Testament. Jesus tells a story, Luke 15, literally starts off, says, Jesus told them a story. If a man has a hundred sheep and one of them gets lost, what will he do? Won't he leave the 99 others in the wilderness and go and search for the one that is lost until he finds it? And when he has found it, he will joyfully carry it home on his shoulders. And when he arrives, he'll call together his friends and his neighbors saying, rejoice with me because I have found my lost sheep. In the same way, there is more rejoicing in heaven over one sinner who repents and returns to God than over 99 others who are righteous and haven't strayed away. There's something in the heart of God that goes after those who wonder, that goes after those who are, who, who, who are struggling. And I'd love for us to be the kind of church where, where because Christ has come after us in rescue, We don't just watch as our mates go walk about. Are you ready? Can I give you homework? Okay. So here's the homework. Who is there in your life who's falling away? Who is there in your life who was close to you or is close to you and was close to Christ? but not so anymore. Who may be in your life group? They've gone from being like part of the group to like like a name on the WhatsApp group. Who's struggling in your life? Okay, let's take out our phones. Come on, come on, take out your cell phone. Take out your cell phone. Where's mine? Did I leave my phone at home? Jeez, that was convenient. Uh, I have, but I have another device here, right in front of me. Um, let's take a second. Is there someone you need to, need to make right with? Is there someone? Confess your sins to one another. It's not hey, like I mean, it, it's broad. It's like maybe I actually sinned against you, and I need to confess to you what I sinned against you. And I need to say, sorry, I'm so sorry that I did this to you. It could also be that. Is there someone who's gone wandering? And, and, and everything in our modern culture goes, well, you know, they'd, maybe they're just being true to themselves. Just let them wonder. No. No. No, we, 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 we're deeply committed to each other. We go after those who wonder. Just writing down my name here too. Okay, enough. I'll give you, you can continue writing if you have a longer list, but the idea is to pick up the phone, invite them to coffee, reach out to them in love, no condemnation, in gentleness and in love. Reach out to your brother or your sister. Let's land by coming to the communion table. 
Can I ask that a few of us just um, stand up and, uh, and share the elements of communion, the, the, um, I think they're called matzos, the wafers, and the grape juice. Just pass them around. Thanks so much, Herman. Thanks, Liana. Yeah, thanks, Ty, and the band can come up. Thanks, Patrick. Gospel culture. Guys, we are, more, we are more sinful than we ever even allow ourselves to realize, hey? And yet, simultaneously, we are more loved and forgiven. And I just don't want us settling for like, well, let me just pretend I'm okay. Sort of, okay, I'm better than that guy. <laughs> um, no, let's, let's get real and let's trust. Because why? Because Jesus has come to rescue us. Because Jesus wants to transform us. Because Jesus wants to radiate beauty through us. And we don't deserve it, but it makes it all the more wonderful. The worst thing that you have ever done and will ever do need not define your life. The worst thing that you have ever done need not define your life. Instead, the greatest act in the history of the universe can. And that was Christ, the creator God of the universe, giving his, his life for you. Can we stand together? I want to lead us in prayer. Jesus, we thank you for the gospel. We thank you for gospel doctrine. We thank you for your life, Jesus. We thank you that you didn't look for the nicest, prettiest, most together bride. You stepped out of heaven across the tracks into a broken and sinful world and you came looking for me. And you love me just the way I am, but too much to leave me that way. And so I thank you that you took my place that every wrong thing that I've ever done, my selfish way I live my life would be forgiven, that my heart and my soul would be cleansed, that my character and my nature could be renewed could be knit into a family where together we could radiate your beauty instead of live life on our own missions. And I thank you, Jesus, that you made that possible. That your body was broken. Your blood was shed in order that we who were far could be brought near.